This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the War School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for Long Run, and the sixth edition was just released and now available. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Church Affiliates. We're going to be having a really interesting show. We're broadcasting live from Rowan University. Uh, we are here at an ESG conference that I participated in. We're going to have a great guest talking about what's happening in the bond markets. John Mousseau, CEO of Cumberland Advisors. John, great to be here with you. Jeremy, thanks for having me. It's Pleasure. A, this is the first time I'm taking this show on the road and lo- broadcasting live like this on my own. No technical expertise here on campus with us, um, but it's great. It's working. Professor, I was just with you in Las Vegas. We were talking about your reaction to the Fed inflation. Uh, obviously, some big news happening through the CPI report and, and your current take on the Fed. Let's get to kick off the show with, with some comments on what you see from the Fed and what's been happening this week in the markets. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, we really saw fireworks yes, uh, on Thursday uh, in the market. Um, you know, so that, that, let me give you the big picture here, and then we can zero in. Um, the core rate, what upset the market, uh, was quite a bit above expectations. I expect the core rate to remain high for a long time, not because the core rate is really high, but because of the distortion in the housing statistics and the way it gets into the index, and housing is the most important single component by far of core inflation. Let me, let me just uh, give you the big picture here. Um, since the pandemic began in March 2020, the all home price indices have gone up by about 40, 40%. When you look at the BLS, because of the lag uh, uh, distributed way it does it, it showed only 12% inflation. In other words, way understating the inflation that we had between 2020 and today. Well, now prices have peaked. The Case-Shiller Index is down. The National Index is down. But because of its lag nature, it shows higher and higher increases, seven-tenths of a percent increase. Really, housing prices are going down. If we put minus seven-tenths of a percent, which is more like what's happening right now in the housing market, you wipe out all of core inflation. Uh, so we have, the question is, is the way the index is constructed is going to overstate core inflation for months to come, just like it understated past inflation when the Fed was pouring money into the system. Now, we hope the Fed realizes this. They've never made a word that says they realize this. Um, And of course, everyone now expects the Fed to be even more hawkish. Um, I think three quarters of a point is pretty much now in the bag for the November uh, increase. I think that's too high. But um, if the Fed sees this, if that becomes one of their last increases and they say we recognize it on the ground, inflation is not accelerating. Uh, I think we can avoid a lot of damage. I think what spurred the rally yesterday was some really good earnings. I mean, Delta came in with, wow, I mean, these are the airlines um, uh, and and several others saying, you know, this this is great times. Today we had pretty good bank earnings and and we're supposed to, I think, even have better bank earnings from the regionals that don't rely on investment banking uh, as much, which was down. Uh, I think the earnings are going to come in better than expected. I think that that uh, that sparked uh, a little bit. Uh, people are so bearishly positioned that anything that encourages sparked a, a rally. Now, that doesn't mean that if the Fed is too tight, is that net bad for the market? Yes. It increases the probability of a recession coming down the road. No question about that. 
Um, but if you do your due diligence on valuation, even a recession does not justify, in my mind, how much stock prices have gone down. So I still believe no matter what happens, stocks are undervalued. Great long-term um, investments. A little bit of what happened today. We had a reversal. I think it started with uh, some of the inflation expectations figured from the University of Michigan. They came in a little hotter than expected. But there's uh, inflation expectations are still well contained by any long-term historical measure. They're, you know, they're not 2%, but they're not 5 or 6% or even 4 They're really around 3 and, and And I'm very honest with you, that probably should be the new target of the Fed a long run in terms of its inflation. But Professor, go through that math on the recession and earnings and what you talk about uh, quite often now is is how much the market should, you know, in theory, decline on a on a fall in earnings with a re- typical recession. And then what happens in reality versus, uh, you know, just the, ma- the math right. of discounting. Right. I mean, if we all know prices of any assets are present value of all their cash flows. Um, if we say a recession declines earnings by 20% for two years and then goes back to normal. If you do the math, that should result in a 2% decline in stock prices. I know that seems incredible, but it's, it's very clear. It's very clear from the math. Now in recession, do prices go down more than that? Of course they do. And throughout history, they have always overreacted. Everyone thinks, oh, my God, this decline is permanent. It's going to stay on for years and years and years. And, of course, it never has. We always bounce back from recessions. We will bounce back from a recession if we have one in the future. And that's why I say even if the Fed overdoes it, you know, the stocks are still at current valuations, you know, 16 times, 15 times earnings, value tilt are 14, 13 times earnings, are excellent long-term investments. John, do you want to hop in with any comments or questions for the professor? No, I agree a lot with what Jeremy says. And I think part of it is, and this goes to the Fed probably overdoing it if they haven't done it already, is they, they change consumers' expectations, right? And so not just from the wealth effect of the market, but from the interest rate effect of what's going on, uh, and not just housing, but other other type things are postponed. People start thinking differently than they did a year ago. And and yeah. You know, that contributes as well. Yeah, I mean, we, don't forget, it, it, mortgages now are, are certainly going to go over seven. I mean, they're there now. I mean, that's just, with, with today's prices even going down, and they are going down, but they're still extremely high, really puts people totally out. They haven't even been keeping up with inflation. Uh, uh, average real wage is down 3.5% year over year. That was reported yesterday. Um, so, I mean, a housing market is going to go into a mini depression almost. And anything that involves lending, auto lending, um, and credit card rates are up. Of course, they're all really so high already. Two or three points don't matter as much. But still, if you're not keeping up with inflation, every dollar counts. So it's going to begin to bite. And as I've mentioned many times before, the money supply is still on a downward uh, path. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that is not consistent with the 2% inflation. Uh, the Fed has got at some point to let up and let credit decline. Uh, there's been a big decline in deposits. A lot of it's because they lag their interest rates and they're moving out, out to other instruments. I'm very interested to see what happens to the money supply, uh, when we get the reading on, uh, uh, a week from Tuesday. I, I would only add to that that, um, you know, you've seen the savings rate plummet, right, from from the COVID crisis, and it's way down. Right, um, right. All that excess cash that's on hand is being eaten up by inflation. Right, and, and, um, and installment and debt is high. Up on that. So all those, a lot of that is going to really cut into that really great consumer spending that we see in the future unless the Fed pivots. That's it. Thanks for some comments to kick us off. Thank you. Bye. Have a great weekend. So we're going to continue here with John live again from from Rowan University. John, tell for our listeners, uh, Cumberland Advisors, you've been in been live for fifty years. I want to say uh, the firm will be fifty years old next year, Jeremy. And uh, you know, started in nineteen seventy three, and one of the 
really bad bear markets, and we've been in a bad bear market this year, so uh, kind of bookending it a little bit. You had had a, a nice stretch, high inflation at the time. Bond yields were much higher to, back then. Oh, tre- tremendous, and they and and they went higher. And uh, you know, this year you've seen interest rates go up a lot, from albeit a very low level. And like anything else, what's has spooked the market is not the level of interest rates, but the speed in which you got here. So, so your specialty has been on the muni side. Do you want to tell people a little bit more about what you guys do? Sure. Um, firm has about three and a half billion under management. Uh, the majority of that is in bonds. The majority of the bonds are, are in municipal bonds. Most of them tax exempt. Um, and, and it's been that way. So we manage money over an interest rate cycle, uh, which usually runs, you know, one to three years, depending on what the Fed's doing, the economy's doing, et cetera. We're very credit conscious, high grade credits. And, um, you know, this year the muni market has suffered probably even worse than the treasury market in some ways, because you've, you've moved from basically longer bond yields of about a little under 2% to now where they're at 5%. And that is much greater than the treasury rise. And what it's caused is a disintermediation with bond funds out there just having liquidations and redemptions and bonds being placed on the market in such large volume that it overwhelms the dealer community. And, you know, it's reflected in the prices going up. So you think about where you are now with a 5% uh, tax-free yield, which is over eight taxable equivalent. So we're actually now seeing pockets of demand pop up, and we are actually seeing, I think, and we'll know more today, um, the outflows of bonds, of bond from liquidations, is slowing down. It's still negative, but it's not as negative as it was. So 5% is for what maturity of a A long bond? bond. Pick it 30-year, 40-year, out, way out there. But Compare that to a, a 30-year bond, which is in treasuries, which isn't even at 4%. And I think the relative comparison of yields between a tax-free bond and a treasury bond are very important because it should that, be lower. It should be lower. That number back at the end of last year, if we were talking a year ago, was at something about 90% of treasuries, and now it's about 135% of treasuries. So uh, from a bargain standpoint, it's hard to imagine it being um, – you know, a heck of a lot cheaper. No, and I've, I've gotten some calls from people saying, maybe now is the time that I I should be thinking about. Maybe they were in cash. Maybe they just sold a business. Maybe now they should be stepping into into that. I think you are starting to get people paying attention to those yields. But why, why would you say what that it went from 90 to 130% in terms of the yields being higher than what they were? What What's causing the yield premium now? in munis versus where they should be relative to taxable in treasuries. Just the, just the ongoing amount of, of liquidations in the market. And, and that's been the, the, the major factor. Supply this year of new issue bonds has actually been down somewhat. Um, and if you think about it, if you're an issuer and you have some flexibility and you don't have to issue bonds, but you want to issue bonds, you're going to say to yourself, well, in the last year I could have issued bonds at two, and now it's going to cost you something close to five. Um, maybe we'll wait. And so you're 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 probably going to continue to see that happen. Now, of course, this, the supply decrease there has been more than made up by the secondary amount of bonds that are the bond funds are flushing into the market. So where do you see people? Are they just going to cash? Is the people who are liquidating these funds? Is it is it traditional mutual funds? Is closed end funds? Where where are the biggest liquidations coming from? They, they tend to they tend to be in in open end funds. Um, and I think a lot of it goes to cash. Is it is it scared money? Yes. Um, but you know what? Gravity takes over after a while. And what happens is someone says, who might be looking at the NAV of their fund every day in the paper and saying, geez, Louise, it keeps going down. I'll sell more of what I have. That eventually peters out and you look at it and say, you know what? Yields are pretty high now. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm done selling. And in fact, like you just made the point, maybe I'll actually buy some bonds or bond funds. And when you do something like the math where you're now buying at over an eight or eight and a quarter percent taxable equivalent yield, you say, boy, for the credit quality and the risk adjusted return on that, it certainly compares decently to the stock market, particularly this year. So we're 
tell us a little bit about how you guys manage uh, the, the muni strategies that you, you, you do. And, and it sounds like you're getting more interested in these higher duration yields. Sure. Um, we tend to manage uh, over an interest rate cycle. And the way we do it most of the time is through what we would call a barbell method. So we have an a, amount of bonds. Think about and, and all of our accounts are separately managed accounts, not funds. So we would have a, a decent amount of bonds at the short end of maturities to act defensively. And the balance would usually be out longer, past 10 or 15 years out in the longer end. The reason that we have that is that the yield curve in tax-free bonds has always been fairly steep. And so you get paid more for going out longer. Um, usually don't have years where the market throws up like this year. So it's, it's been a, a tough year. And if you think about it, Going back to last year, the longer end of the market paid you a little bit, and the shorter end of the market pay, paid you nothing. I mean, it was almost nothing. Now it's different. Shorter shorter yields are, are decently higher. Longer yields are way higher. But what we have done is move some of that short end of the barbell out longer, locking in these higher yields because our feeling is, and you know, with Dr. Siegel speaking very much in the same way we're thinking. We think that inflation does come down. We think yields do come down. And some of that's reflected, just look at the treasury curve. Um, you have been in a negative yield curve from two years to 10 years, not for a few weeks, for a number of months. And as we know, what what does that mean? It doesn't necessarily forecast a recession. It causes it because the banks cannot make money borrowing short-term and lending long-term. So instead, they start to restrict credit. Uh, one way you can tell that's already happening, uh, and Dr. Siegel mentioned it with like 7% mortgages. Not only are the mortgage rates higher than they were, but the spread, say, over treasuries is larger than it was, which is another way of saying the, the banks are getting a lot more credit sensitive on who they are lending money to. We're talking with John Mousseau, CEO of Cumberland Advisors, about his take on the bond market. So, John, that, that inverted curve, that sort of place where the long on the treasury market, where the long end is shorter, lower yields than the short end, you know, people that inverted curve, it's a very interesting that uh, the causal of the recession. Are You guys also manage taxable strategies. Do you, are you treating that differently, given what we we're just talking about here on the munis, steep duration, good yield premium? What do you think about sure. the taxable side? Sim similarly, and on the taxable side, we tend to be very, you know, a high-grade credits really mostly U.S. treasuries, U.S. agencies, um, taxable municipal bonds, small amount of corporates. And we do manage it the same way. Our durations are a little lower on the taxable side for that reason that I just gave. A long treasury is at less than four, you know, in 30 years, and a long tax-free bond is 100 basis points higher than that. So for, from our perspective, we, we are a little more cautious on the taxable side, whereas on the tax-free side, we think it's a, a giveaway. But I would add that this barbell approach isn't necessarily there forever. Once we get to a point where we think the Fed is going to be mostly done raising short-term interest rates, you create an area where now you actually want to own some bonds that we would call in the belly of the yield curve, seven to 15 years. It's a lot of areas where we generally tend to avoid because uh, we think the barbell produces a better return. But as you get to the end, what happens? Yields start to come down. And I would suggest, um, as D Dr. Siegel mentioned, if the Fed starts to signal that they are probably going to do another hike and then maybe wait and see what the results are from waiting at, at these higher short-term rates, boy, if the market starts to smell, when is the first rate cut coming? And that's when yield curves start to steepen. You, you keep hearing every message from the Fed is we're going to not, Loretta message, there's, we're not cutting rates at all next year. The, the, yet they, coming into this year, exactly one year ago, the most hawkish thought they'd have hike 50 basis points. A few people thought they were going to hike 50 basis points. What, how much confidence do you have in what they're saying? Do you, why, why are they ignoring what the professor is saying? You know, that is the $64,000 question. And I think a lot of what the, drives the Fed, and you have to go through a market like we've gone through, and 
and a lot of the Fed speak we've had to listen through to, to come up with this, is that you realize that unemployment is such a driver for the Fed. So if you if you went back to last year in the in the middle of 21, what did you have? Well, you had inflation starting to pick up. And when did it start to pick up? It picked up in March, April of 21. Why? Because everybody became out of hibernation from, from COVID and, and vaccinated and started to spend money. So you get to the fall of 2021 and instead of uh, nobody being at Lincoln Financial Field, you had people paying and paying for parking tickets and that money gets spent and that money gets rolled over and respent. So the velocity of money had really started to pick up. But meanwhile, I think the Fed was looking at, look, let's look at the unemployment rate and it hadn't really dropped as far yet. So you still had the big gap that was a little bit left over from COVID. I think where they misread it was there was unemployment there because people were still sitting flush on funds that they got from various PPP loans, uh, direct aid from the government, et cetera. So I think it was a head fake. I think the Fed bought it. And by the time they got around to raising rates and cutting back on their quantitative uh, purchases of bonds this past spring of 22, the inflation genie was already out of the bottle because, you know, let, let's look at it. If you go back to the fall of 21 and they're still printing, they're still buying $40 billion a month of mortgages and, 40, and $80 billion a month of treasuries, the first thing that comes to your mind is why are they trying to keep rates low in the mortgage market when housing prices had already reached a point where first-time home buyers couldn't buy a home anyway? So yeah. that those are the kind of signals that tell us the Fed was late on this. So what's the counter-argument to that now? Well, if they keep going, they will have the inflation genie back in the bottle, but they may have let the unemployment rate. Well, they have. I mean, housing, as the professor was saying, is down, down in real time. In real time, it is down, but it won't be in their statistics right. or time. And they say that. They admit. They don't. Waller says, yes, the, the, the inflation is lagged, but they just keep saying everything else is going to have to, everything else is going to have to come down that much more. But real-time inflation is not yeah. an issue. Let me let me tell you, you know, Cumberland, we're based in uh, Sarasota, Florida. And uh, unfortunately, where Hurricane Ian has done tremendous damage to the southwest part of Florida, further south than us. But if you look at almost everywhere in Florida, except for the high end, where there's still some cash purchases, everything down there is price cut, price cut, price cut. It's not only there, it's a lot of other places too. And what, what do you have? You have people that are now having to use 7% mortgages to try to buy houses. So their costs are higher, which means that their threshold for buying is lower. Yeah. And yet at the same time, the people selling homes think they're going to get the same price they got nine or 10 or 10 or 11 months ago. And so now you have eight or nine months of inventory, whereas you only had a month of inventory beginning of the year. It's a big fancy way of saying nothing's moving, but eventually prices start to clear. And when, when people say, well, this time it's different, baloney, it's never different. The timing may be different, but Florida, for over 100 years, has been the cycle of land booms and busts. It's no different this time. And it will be no different in other parts of the country as well. We, we've been focusing on the U.S., um, but certainly it's a global market. Um, you know, The Cumberland has been a big sponsor. Your, your uh, founder, David Kotak, has been very involved in this Global Interdependence Center event that we're right. here. But also in, in Maine, and, and this means we had Catherine Mann, who's one of the Bank of England monetary policy uh, contributors and, you know, certainly what's going on in England right now with the LDI story, liability driven investment. You have all these problems. John, I'm curious. It's not like LDI is unique to England. What what do you think is happening there uh, and, and, and how it's going to. I don't know. And boy, you know, um, I would love to ask Catherine when she's at liberty to be able to say is what the heck's been going on with the Bank of England the last few weeks. Because it's a uh, fake left, go right, you know, end around, and it's been hard to read what's going on. And listen, it causes consternation. Certainly causes volatility in markets. Um, it wait, it, it is hard to hard to not look at foreign markets and say they are a bargain. I mean, Dr. Siegel mentioned just equities being undervalued at this point. Boy, foreign markets really undervalued when you start to bake in the dollar, right? And every time you go through um, these kind of reversions to the mean, you tend to see 
U.S. markets and foreign markets come back together again and go the other way. And it's it's not marked by any particular recession. It happens almost every recession. And it doesn't matter which direction they come from. So, um, you know, at, at some point the dollar stops advancing and uh, foreign markets become uh, a good place to own a little more. Do you worry about the, the that bond market? You know, that there's a lot of leverage in our bond market as well that can cascade into some issue for pensions? Yes, um, be, because... What you worry about is as the Fed continues to raise short-term rates is, you know, they're never happy until something breaks. And the question is, what breaks? Um, is it is it Credit Suisse? I'd, I'd argue they're already broken. Yeah. Um, maybe become a ward of uh, Switzerland. But there's other things that are breaking. You know, we're hearing stories about certain real estate funds, et cetera, and, and private equity that owns it. And they are trying to shovel real estate out the door as fast as they can. If they can get out of deals, they're trying to get out of deals. And and trying to do it as expeditiously as possible because they see the writing on the wall. So whatever breaks will have a lot of leverage in it. That part you can – Real estate. And, and real estate's probably the biggest candidate in it. But there's probably certain private equity investments that would fall into that, that just because of the degree of leverage, right? Yeah. And um, – I, we 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 will know because uh, it's certainly being reflected in in the bond spreads, whether they are mortgage rates or just overnight lending rates. So it sounds like you guys are are willing to go long duration. Your viewing is the opportunity. Certainly in Muniland, you're willing to go long duration. Um, it, even but you know even in uh, you know I never like to talk about individual bonds or, or stocks or names, but. You know, you, you look at where treasuries are and even long treasuries, which were, you take the 10-year, which was at one and a half at the beginning of the year, and now it's basically at four. Yep. In 30 years, a little less. Um, at some point, you're going to say, let's just own a big chunk of long treasuries, you know, because you'll always have the liquidity and people will argue, well, you don't have the liquidity in the treasury market as much as you did. But in the land of the one, I, you know, <laughs> this treasures are still king. You know, stocks and bonds, bonds used to diversify stocks. They haven't this year, no. but at these levels, it may be starting to come back. And, you know, um, when you look at the yield levels and particularly munis, you realize that the bond levels, just pure coupon levels that you went through even prior to COVID, right? Where you had some zero interest rates in some parts of the world, um, and people said, "Boy, this is a liquidity trap. We'll never get not. We'll never get out of it. Boy, you're out of it. You know, and you didn't know this is what it was going to take to to get out of it. But I, I, speaking for Cumberland, we're back in the bond business because now incomes are attractive, right? You know, and and bonds really are, and have been up till this you know past episode of last year, really the parts of portfolios that you know provide the ongoing you know, it's an old Jim Labenthal line, but the, the workhorse of investments and uh, year after year, the coupon, you know, and, and in pension funds, more time compounding. Um, and listen, go compound 4% as opposed to compounding 2%. It, it grows a lot faster. Much, much uh, more interesting yields. Any, as we're wrapping up our, our first half of conversation here, any closing thoughts as you think about the Fed being, the ultimate uh, arbiter of what's happening in markets. When, what's your bet on when they pause and and keep things, they slow down the pace? When's the pause coming? Great question. Um, if you read everybody that seems to throw a uh, their two cents in, and it's funny, if you went back to the Alan Greenspan Fed, uh, he'd be really mad for all these other Fed governors talking out, right? Because he ran a tighter chip. Um, I would say it's in, it's in the spring, but when something breaks, I guarantee you the Fed will start to not cut, but they'll start to signal a pause because they'll want to assess the damage on whatever's breaking. We'll have to see what is that that breaks first. Yeah, um, I, I mean, you know, it could be it could be a hedge fund, um, real estate fund, real estate fund, et cetera. You know, uh, real estate's real estate's got a lot of issues out there, and. Um, Again, not to cite anything, but I have heard where there's some very large 
lenders to commercial real estate groups, uh, they have cut the lines of investment, and 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 not only have not only have cut their their lines to borrow, but increased the cost of those lines dramatically on what's left to borrow. That makes sense. Yep. We've been we've been talking here from Rowan University. We talked with John Musso, CEO of Cumberland Advisors. John, always great to see you. Thanks Jeremy. for coming on behind the markets. Jeremy, thanks for having me. Enjoy. We're going to be continuing the conversation. We're going to go talking about ESG investing with a professor who I was on a panel with earlier this morning. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. I'm going to be joined uh, for the rest remainder of the program by Jordan Howe, who's a professor here at Rowan. Jordan, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hello. Thank you for having me on your show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your interests, your research interests. We're going to talk about our panel on ESG investing. What is ESG investing? Some of your comments, critiques, sure. but you also are an author. Could be having a new book out there that we'll talk about a little bit as well, but tell us, tell us about your background. Sure. So, um, I got my PhD in environmental stuff about 10 years ago, generally speaking. And, um, I've been working on sustainability topics ever since a few years ago, I got my MBA as well because, um, I was finding that a lot of my environmental uh, work was not particularly well received by companies or funds or things like that, uh, mostly on the grounds of this you know, claim like, well, it's great that you understand the, the environmental science part and the social science part, but really you're not too fluent with how businesses work. And so I figured, let's fix that problem and learn how businesses work. And now here we are at Rowan, a professor of sustainable business, where I get the, the privilege of teaching our students uh, all sorts of stuff at the intersection of environment and business and finance and things like that. So we, we talked about this morning, what is ESG investing? Give us your take on the status of ESG investing, what you see as the Wall Street going after it, what you see as the issues, the pros, the cons. Is, sure. is, it, is it a worthwhile exercise for investors to be focused on ESG ideas? I think it's one of these things where it, it kind of depends on the level that you're looking at. So to my mind, ESG as it's practiced by by mainstream Wall Street is, is more of a marketing exercise than anything else. And you see this critique from time to time in, in all sorts of business media, people who are, you know, just external to the industry critical of it or folks who are working inside of it and kind of disillusioned with what they actually found. And there's been any number of recent scandals that kind of um highlight some of the limits of of using ETFs and mutual funds to try and achieve environmental and social outcomes. But as a concept, I mean, there, it's hard to hard to refute the notion that environmental and social projects need additional flows of capital. The finance industry exists to connect projects with capital. And so, yeah, there totally should be, you know, space in the in the marketplace for supporting these types of projects. So the concept is great. The execution in the last five years or so, I think, has has left something to be desired, at least from a sustainability perspective. So what what would you say are the things that would be worthwhile that if you, if you were to say and we addressed this a little bit, you, you talked about on our, our talk today. But sure. Give a few examples of if you were going after sustainable investments with to have an impact. Um, yeah. How would you more well design that? I think I think the first thing that I would think about, is, as we talked about on the panel, is there's this kind of uh, problem with with data and understanding the actual uh, environmental and social impacts of an investment. So you have people assembling ETFs and funds that you know it seems like we're understanding the environmental impacts of a particular firm. But really, what's behind that? What is the firm doing to to actually kind of confront environmental problems in their day-to-day business rather than just putting together a portfolio? So I see those as two different things. So the first step would have to be trying to, you know, assemble investment products that are focused more on like actual on-the-ground impacts. So the example I gave earlier and one that I would give again now is this whole world of like conservation finance, for instance, where... You're creating investment vehicles, you know, of different types. Some of them are debt. Some of them other other types of investment vehicles that are focused on supporting, you know, on the ground conservation and habitat preservation projects. They generate a return. It's a longer time horizon than a typical, you know, ETF or fund. But there's almost a one-to-one relationship between the dollars invested in that product and the actual environmental outcomes on the other end. So it's almost like the, you know, ESG done right, as as I said earlier is focused a little bit more on matching the investment flow to specific projects that have kind of clear environmental credentials behind them. Can, can you go a little bit deeper on what is that con- conservation? Sure, conservation finance. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of exactly what it sounds like. So, um, you know, we have this twin crises, if you like, of, of climate change and biodiversity loss or species going extinct. And one way of kind of addressing both of those would be to um, support preservation of habitat. So sometimes conservation finance, as we see it here in the U.S., a lot of people may have heard of the Nature Conservancy, for instance. They go out there, their strategy for preserving nature is just to buy the land and sit on it forever. You preserve the ecosystem, so on and so forth. It doesn't generate a whole lot of return from, you know, in the way that you'd hope with, with kind of uh, in, investment capital. Certainly it has an environmental impact. Conservation finance, for instance, might do the same thing in that it's focused on preserving land, but the way you'd go about it would be maybe work with a local government to create a, a preservation area and then identify like area businesses maybe involved in ecotourism or kind of sustainable agriculture that can operate and manage that protected area in a way where their businesses that are you know, hopefully profitable. And then that's sort of what drives the eventual return to the investors. So you know, as it's been practiced, it's kind of been focused on maybe uplifting local communities while also achieving these environmental goals. And then in the long run, paying back investors with some return on that investment as well. Talking with Jordan Howe, who's a professor here at Rowan University. Uh, Jordan, you, you you also did, uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about your book. So sure. you, you have a book, Garbage in the Garden State. That's true. What got you motivated to start researching garbage? Garbage is a fascinating universe. Uh, I joke that my whole career has been garbage. It's been something that's I've been working on for the last 10 years or so. Where did I start with with garbage? You know, I can't identify an origin. It's just something that's always captured my attention. You know, it is a huge industry. There's uh, a lot of money in, in trash. It's one of the things we've been doing as a human species since we've been a species, trying to figure out, well, what do we do with the stuff that we don't want? So we can dig back in history, literally, as archaeologists do, find these piles of trash and see how we lived. And so, you know, I'm not an archaeologist, but fast forwarding to the modern day equivalent of that, how are we handling our trash? And, you know, I'm here in New Jersey now as I started to look into it. I used to do research in other states. Once we moved here, looked into New Jersey. New Jersey's played a huge role in, in garbage history in the U.S., incidentally. So much so that I thought, let's write a book about this thing because it's, it's kind of surprising how central a role the state has played. So go into why is that? What, what, where is the, uh, what, and what is the impact? Sure. So, uh, you know, picture a map of the U.S. in your brain. You know, New Jersey's wedged between uh, Philadelphia and New York City, essentially, and that's been true for a long time. Unsurprisingly, New Jersey, as, as many comedians will tell you, has been the recipient of a lot of garbage from those cities as well. The jokes are true. Uh, historically, there's been tons of waste from those two cities. And so, you know, it's a small state. Um, it's a crowded state. Figuring out what do we do with these huge flows of trash has been something at the forefront of policymakers' minds since the 1950s. And um, the book looks into that. Um, you know, because of the kind of pressing nature of, of having this huge coastline and sort of area you'd like to protect and preserve, also economic pressure, there's a lot of growth, there's a lot of housing, there's a lot of everything in New Jersey. You're figuring out what to do with trash has, has been this big deal. And so, you know, the state has had to innovate in a way that I think other states have not, you know, just to pick a comparison, Pennsylvania has acres of nothing in it, you know, just, just wide open spaces where if you wanted to build a landfill, probably you could. Not really the case in New Jersey. So you have to be a little bit more intentional and strategic with planning for, for dealing with garbage um, and recycling, of course. Um, but there's been a lot that's gone with that all the way up to the Supreme Court. The mafia has been there. The stereotypes are true about that. You know, there's been a lot of innovative companies that have come out of New Jersey with regard to recycling. Um, you know, so, so trying to understand that and present that to readers and then also kind of pitch a case for what could be next for the state with regard to garbage. I mean, you can kind of lean into the joke a little bit. And, you know, it is serious business, but why not become a world leader in this area as well? Um, it's sort of the case that I make towards the end of the book. And, and you talk, one of the things we talked about on the panel is is where things are going with futures markets and and you've talked about recycling but let, let give some background on recycling yeah. is, and and are we recycling enough is recycling how much better is recycling the traditional ways we put our plastics we put our papers yeah. you know all the stuff that you do at home how much of an impact is that having versus the traditional landfill story so from from an environmental perspective it it honestly is hard to tell sometimes. I mean, things go into a landfill and they biodegrade, which has its own environmental impacts. A lot of stuff that we would recycle doesn't really break down, it just sort of sits there. 
So it's not maybe, you know, contributing to the same types of environmental problems as a landfill. But then we look at what are we, th you know, throwing away that could be recycled. Well, that's, you know, material that could be the input for some new product or process. So when you, you know, you make a decision to put that sort of stuff in a landfill or an incinerator, you're throwing away a natural resource in some ways. Um, you know, and from an environmental perspective, that part would be bad. So we'd like to capture these resources that we used in some form. You know, we decided to label them recyclable and let's get them back into the, the flow in some way. In the, in the U.S., you know, a figure that's highlighted is we recycle anywhere between 30 and 45 percent of all the material, you know, that we generate in a year. Not particularly good, not maybe atrociously bad, but the point is that you could clearly do better. So some of the research that that's grown out of this book with some colleagues here at Rowan has been trying to identify, well, where does the recycling market itself actually kind of fail? Where, where are these points of market failure? Um, you know, you have the situation where about half of anything that could be recycled is going to a landfill. At the same time, you have major packaging manufacturers and consumer products brands saying things like, we would really like to have, you know, recycled plastic in all of our bottles, but we just can't get enough of the stuff to meet our demand. So there's some sort of market failure happening, whereas you know, recycled material is not being kept from the landfill and it's not going to people that actually want to pay for it and use it. So we started thinking like, well, what if the, the market for recyclable material were more like, you know, the way that other commodities are bought and sold? Like a lot of industrial commodities, as you and your listeners know, are sold through futures contracts and other types of kind of derivatives. You know, there's a spot market, of course, but a lot of the transacting happens in those derivative markets because, you know, you're better able to plan and hedge risk and so on and so forth. There's currently not any sort of futures contracts available for recyclable materials uh, in the U.S., pretty much anywhere in the world. We were surprised to learn that there's any number of futures available for, you know, different types of plastic, aluminum, other things that are raw new material. We tried to um, figure out, like, well, what if we, you know, what would we have to do basically to create the kind of exchange ecosystem for futures contracts for recycled plastic or paper or glass or things like that in the hope that large manufacturers that want to buy this stuff could then sort of, you know, better predict the flow of material and the price and, you know, processors that are looking to sell this stuff, they can kind of lock in price and know that they're selling it. They have an incentive to then go ahead and actually collect it instead of sending it to a landfill. So trying to correct that market failure that existed. We um, were fortunate. Our, our, our studies been funded by the state of New Jersey. You know, they were interested in the idea um, and they've been interested in it again. They supported us again. And so we're hoping at this phase of the project that, you know, within a few years, you'll actually be able to uh, trade, you know, futures contracts in like number five plastic or something like that on a major exchange. That, that's the goal we're headed for. That, that is super interesting. We, we were excited about it. Yeah, we thought it was a cool concept. I mean, in Europe, you I mean, the, these futures for carbon credits trade sure. everywhere. I mean, you're again. Yeah. It's a, we we talked a little bit about how in Europe is sort of a, a is you could say leading or further ahead in yeah. ESG initiatives than the U.S. Really, a lot of the investment criteria in Europe is that you have ESG baked into more of the considerations. Now, you could say is, is that creating more problems? Like, you know, the, the, some of the governments were saying we got to ban these carbon credits because things were spiking so high and. Yeah. It, there's all sorts of issues with going on in energy prices, but it, it, do, do you think Europe might get interested? Do you see any developments in the European markets on any of this? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And um, what some of our initial like kind of research, we were connected with a, a Norwegian guy running a company called Norexico, um, and they started as a company that was aiming to develop futures for the pulp and paper industry. And so initially it was all new pulp, new paper. And then they sort of had the same idea, like, well, what if we designed a futures contract for cardboard and see what happens on a European market? And and they had some challenges getting regulatory approval. I think it's it's launched now. I don't know what the trading has looked like, but um, their products trade on European markets. And they also have like a, a Chinese variant that's for the Chinese market. And um, in particular, the Chinese one has done really well. So there's a little bit of a precedent that we can look at for this commodities you know, new derivative in the commodity space. The other thing that, that's been really instructive is trying to um, avoid some of the errors around like cryptocurrency futures and like other sorts of uh, new investment products that have, you know, some of them have, have shown up and then like had to be called back in some ways because, you know, the CFTC or SEC didn't like how it was done or whatever. So trying to understand like some of the dynamics of those markets and apply them to, you know, what we could do with recyclable material 
one, to avoid the mistake and two, to sort of make sure that it's something that's useful to, you know, um, any party in that transaction, people who are going to be selling recyclables, people who want to buy them. We want to make sure that we would be designing something that's actually useful for the folks who want to uh, use recycled stuff. I mean, that's really the target market. Is there anything, so there's the the, the mask consumer and producers or the people yeah. who are buying it, but is there anything down to the individual level, like your, your house, <laughs> and how do you incentivize somebody to do more? Um, is, there, is that a thought? Yeah, I, I mean, that's part of the, the book research that I did, you know, for that project. Um, there's so much like consumer education, like here in New Jersey, recycling education, it starts in like kindergarten or first grade in the public schools. So kids, kids grow up here learning about this is, a, this is why you should recycle. This is how you sort stuff and so on. And as a result, when they get to be adults, if they still live in the state, you know, it's not surprising that they participate in New Jersey's curbside collection programs. Um, you know, one of the worst things that's ever happened in the world of recycling was this idea of single stream where you just put all your stuff into one bin, recycling bin, and then, you know, a truck comes by and picks it up. I mean, I'm old enough to remember in the 90s when you would have to separate stuff at your house. It wasn't that long ago. And the recycling outcomes were better because there was not, you know, quote unquote contamination, you know, where you have all these different things mixed together and then someone has to sort them. It turns out it's better for recycling overall if we all sort our stuff at the outset and that's collected separately. Hmm. Um, that's something we've really gone away from in the U.S. in the name of convenience. You know, like, well, it's more convenient for people if they just throw all their stuff in one box and put it out at the curb. Yeah, but it's actually worse for recycling overall because you have contamination and it's harder to sort and it's expensive to sort. It's dangerous. Stuff blows up at recycling plants all the time. Um so, you know, if if I were in charge of recycling in the world, I would say, like, everyone needs to separate their stuff again. And, you know, that's how it's going to be to actually get the proper outcome. What, what what percent of people are doing it at home today? That's a great question. I mean, in, in New Jersey, you know, that's sort of what I'm most familiar with. And in some ways, New Jersey is like the rest of the country, you know, demographically. And in other ways, it's quite different. Um, you know, recycling, the intent to recycle is generally pretty high. People want to recycle. Whether or not they get it right is a different question. Yeah. So people put all sorts of weird stuff in recycling nowadays. It's this phenomenon called wish cycling, where you're like holding a piece of plastic, you know, and you're like, all right, well, I put this other plastic in the recycling and that was fine. This is also plastic. I'm going to throw it in there too. The problem is that that other thing may not necessarily be recyclable and it sort of gets into the stream and it messes up the whole load of plastic and they have to throw the whole thing out. Mm. So people, you know, what's an example of that? So, um, you know, number five plastic, like yogurt tubs and stuff like that, or, or things, you know, maybe get from the deli counter, like that kind of flexible plastic that a lot of food packaging comes in. It's number five, it's polypropylene, the technical term in some parts of the U S very recyclable in other parts of the U S like where I live, you can't recycle number five. But it's sort of irritating to have to keep those like distinctions right. in mind. And so people just, you know, sort of are like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to put it in the recycle anyway right. and let the company deal with it. You know, so depending on what your local processor is doing behind the scenes, you may have kind of. I have no idea what in Philadelphia, I mean, it's Philadelphia suburbs. Yeah. I have no idea what there the you answer go. is to that. Yeah. And and you're not alone. And it, And it's something that changes all the time. And that's not helpful either. So one of the thinking, one of, some of the thinking behind our futures project was like, all right, well. If it turns out that number five plastic is really not that valuable at the end of the day, then a futures market would indicate that because no one's buying the contracts. The price will be zero or negative or something weird like that. So that should be data for regulators and for companies to say, all right, well, we, this isn't really recyclable. We should stop using this material and hopefully get it out of the stream entirely. In that case, that kind of reduces confusion for people too. At least that's the hope. So... Any other advice for for people listening? And what they what could they do personally better uh, in in managing their own garbage and recycling? Um, don't put plastic bags in the recycling bin, like flexible plastic bags, because that those get clogged in the sorting equipment and it causes fires and stuff like that. Don't put other weird stuff in your recycling bin. If you don't know that it's recyclable, it isn't. So like garden hoses end up in recycling bins all the time. Why? I don't know. Some people think it seems like it should be recyclable, and so they throw it in there. This causes a lot of problems. So, you know, if if one thing you can do, if you can find out what is actually recyclable according to your town or your county or whoever's collecting stuff in your town, find it out, 
make sure that that's the only stuff that's going into the recycling bin and you'll kind of be doing everyone a favor and also making the recycling system more efficient and effective too. Um, any any other things from the book you think that are worth, uh, worth highlighting? Yeah. Um, one thing I think is worth pointing out, like, you know, environmentalists like me, we like to minimize landfills. Let's let's landfill less and less and less. You're never going to really get rid of landfills. You can't because there's some stuff that you can't recycle. There's some stuff that, you know, is too dangerous to recycle or doesn't have a market or whatever. You're going to have to put it somewhere. And like the way this is illustrated to me is I had a meeting with a guy who um, he was involved in running the landfill for the Meadowlands in North Jersey. And like I said, okay, well, what what are some weird things that you get? And he's like, well, we're right near the port of Newark. So anything that comes in that like spoiled during transit, like it ends up in our landfills. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, well, one time, like we got a, a, a container of beer that had spoiled and it like all exploded inside the shipping container. It couldn't be sold. It couldn't be recycled. You couldn't do anything with it. So they had like this container of beer that they had to basically dump in the landfill. But it gets more gross than that. Like one time it was a shipment of garlic from another country that had turned while it was on the boat. So they got this shipping container full of rotting garlic that like they weren't sure like if we could even dispose of this, it could be like a like an air pollution hazard or stuff like that. But the wildest one that like the reason why you can never get rid of landfills is because especially in a coastal community, you get these huge sea creatures that wash ashore sometimes. So this guy was telling me that, you know, in his 20 year career, they've had like eight or nine different whales mm. that like would somehow die, wash onto the shore or get dragged ashore by a boat. And the state police are calling them like, hey, um, we have this whale that <laughs> that needs to go somewhere. We can't just put it on the beach because it'll like rot and that's disgusting. So we need you to dig a giant hole in your landfill and we're going to have a whale uh, funeral basically at some yeah. point. So we're always going to need landfills, even though we can try to minimize them as much as we can. That, that, that was something that was kind of a surprise to me from the research. So the book is coming out in April. Pre orders available now. Rutgers University Press. Available on Amazon, Garbage in the Garden State. For yep. people who want to stay in touch with the research you're doing on the futures market, other things, where can they find more about what you're doing? You can uh, find me on my website, jordanphowell.org, in fact, uh, or send me an email through through Rowan University. You can find me listed on Rowan's website as well. Well, this was fun. It was very yeah. nice to meet you here Absolutely. at the ESG conference. Thank you for spending time with us on Behind the Markets. Yeah, like, thank you. I'd like to thank our engineer Dion Simpkins on the soundboard back in Philly. I've been here at Rowan University. It's been a fun conference with the Global Interdependence Center. Check them out for all their conferences. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.